they're a low-cost wrap account or to deal directly on a, on a share platform where something like a Macquarie Online Trading or a desktop broker where you've got access to shares, managed funds, ETFs, and an attached cash account. You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 186 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. For the investment gurus out there, this episode will be too easy, too basic and too everything. Today is for anybody among us who knows as little about financial investments as I do. I went to see Liam Short of Arante in Castle Hill, who kindly agreed to give us an Investing 101. My first question to Liam is, what exactly is a wrap account? The best way to explain a wrap account is in terms of, think of a supermarket. So you go in with your basket into a supermarket and with a wrap account, you can choose direct shares, you can choose managed funds, you can choose uh, managed portfolios, term deposits and cash accounts and ETFs. So you can get the full range of products, put them into your basket, take them to the checkout. If you go home and after six months, you've, you found one of the, the products didn't work, you can take it back and swap and change it for something else that, that will suit you. So you see, a wrap account provides all the reporting on each of those individual investments in one tax report at the end of the year that your accountant can use to do your financials. So it's convenient. But with a wrap account, I can't see 15 BHP shares and 25 NEP shares. Yes, you still can. So what used to be called master trusts, they were very limited. They would just have managed funds and you didn't know what the underlying investments were. With a wrap account, you can have direct equities. You can have a managed fund. So you can have that transparency that you want. And yes, you can have your 15 BHP shares. You can have term deposit with, you know, with a bank and you can have an ETF that covers over a thousand stocks. So you can have the full mixture and transparency. Whereas if you just go for an individual managed fund, then you're just relying on that one manager or if it's a multi-managed fund, you know, there's a set of managers in there and you have less transparency as to what the individual holdings are and what's, you know, what's in the account. And then if you want to take it one step up from a wrap account and bring in a professional manager, that's what it's called a managed account, where rather than just buying a managed fund where you and other people all put your money into into and buy units in a fund, in a managed account, you own all the underlying assets in your own name or in your own SMSF's name, and you just have a manager managing those assets for you. So it's complete transparency, complete control tax-wise, so that you can choose the tax parcels that are bought and sold to suit your specific circumstances. So that's where managed accounts are becoming a bit more popular. Thankfully, the, the fees on them are, are dropping as well, so that they're becoming cost-effective as well. I like your analogy of the uh, supermarket. That, that is very good. That makes it much easier to understand. So going back to the supermarket, I go in with my little basket. And so when I first walk around and I grab the 15 BHP shares and the 25 NAP shares and put them into my basket, and then I might grab some ETFs and some term deposits, etc. But then I also come to a counter where a nice man is waiting for me. And I basically say to him, I'm, I'm 
overwhelmed. I don't know what I want. Here's $100. Put it into Australian equities. You choose how to invest it. And then you just tell me how it goes. And that would be a managed fund, correct? That would be a managed fund. Or if you wanted to hold the ownership still in your of each asset in your own name, rather than being lumped in with other people, that's where the managed account option come into place. I see. Okay. So then for the managed account, to, I go to another gentleman and I say, here, $100, buy what you think is best for me, but you buy it in my name and then the shares and whatever it is, is then in my name, but somebody else decided to buy this, etc., on my behalf. Yes. And the extra control there is that when you do go to sell, rather than the manager just deciding, you know, to sell down and you take the capital gains and losses as happens... With a managed account, you can actually say, well, sell those first 15 BHP shares that I bought at, at $15. Don't sell the ones that I bought at $30. You know, so you can choose the tax parcels that are, are sold. So you're not at the whim of the, the actual fund manager as far as which um, just selling down as they want. I see. So with a managed account, I'm basically in control how much involvement I have or how little involvement I have. I can just give the $100 and say, buy whatever you think is best for me in my name, buy it in my name. Or I can then at some stage step back into action and I say, actually, sell those shares and buy those shares. In that case, you would basically take the manager out of the, the position and just manage it yourself. The main reason to have the, the managed account is, one, it's active, he can, be, he can be moving on your behalf, but also taking your tax position into account. Whereas with a managed fund, they're not taking your own personal tax position into account. So these are basically the three main options people have. They can either go for a wrap account, a managed fund or a managed account. Or they can buy directly themselves. They can buy directly themselves nowadays, yes. So they basically have four yep. options. They invest directly via Comsec or another trading platform. Yeah. Or they do a wrap account, a managed fund or a managed account. Yes. And then when we come to ETFs, this is basically just a product. When we go back to the supermarket, the ETFs are just the shiny boxes that are on the shelves. So you can yep. choose them or not. And they basically just give you a nice diversified cover of the entire market they cover. Yeah, so again, going back to the supermarket idea, it's instead of picking one specific type of biscuit, you're picking a package of the mixed variety that gives you your five of all of them. I see, and that's the ETF, yes. I like that. In terms of managed funds and ETFs, there's hundreds and thousands of them out there. Um, with wrap accounts, it's <laughs> I keep going back to the supermarket, but it's very similar. You, you've got your Macquarie's, your Colonials, your NetWealth, Hub24, Panorama. It's very much like you know, Coles, Woolworths, Aldi, Costco. There's only a certain number of those supermarkets or wrap accounts available. Inside of each of those, then they've got some of them will have thousands of options. Others will have a very limited scale-down option to reduce fees. Again, it's whether you're an Aldi customer that doesn't need a lot of choice or whether you're a, a Panorama customer that wants your 500 managed funds, 300 direct shares, term deposits from three or four different places. So there's options out there to suit each person's needs. You already mentioned some names, but just to throw some more names into the mix, in Australia, who would be the five largest providers of rep accounts? Well, these are not recommendations, they're just pure... Yeah, yeah, just so that I have heard some names. Yeah, so basically I'd say the top five would be Macquarie Rap, Colonial First Rap, 
BT Panorama or its sister, its older version, BT Rap, MLC, Master Key, Rap Series, probably after that, Net Wealth. Like there are a large number of smaller little players, but um, they're the main ones. The same for managed funds in Australia? Managed funds, there's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. It's difficult to say these are the five largest ones. Some of the older ones are the largest ones, the Perpetual Industrial Share, Magellan Global Fund, Colonial First Aid Imputation. These are all funds that have been going for over a decade and have huge amounts of money in them. Um, but you will find that they've probably, you know, in, especially in terms of, Perpetual and colonial, they're seeing fairly large outflows into lower cost, more more up-to-date options. And the managed funds, they're actually unit trust, aren't they? They buy and sell shares and then investors acquire any number of units. Yes, that's the issue that everybody's a unit holder regardless of their individual tax position. So when a managed fund is sold, it takes no regard at all for your whether you're an SMSF in pension phase or a you know a young person on you know, the highest tax bracket. So would it be possible to say that managed funds are not ideal for SMSFs? There are some that are being deliberately written for or designed for SMSFs. You'll see some dividend stripping funds like um, Russell Dividend, High Dividend Fund, the, the Vanguard High Yield Fund, Plato, Australian Shares Income Fund. So they're deliberately designed for to try and get the highest dividends possible so that they're aimed towards pension clients. And then you'll have other funds that are going you know, for IT or areas where there's very little income and it's mostly going to be capital growth over the longer term. And just coming back to my original question where I asked you for the top five of each of the different investment options. So you covered the top five for wrap accounts and managed funds. Is it possible to give it a top five for managed accounts or that's too hard? That one is hard because it depends on the platform. You will find ones like Mason Stevens out there, DNR Capital. It just depends on whether they've got shelf space in each of the wrap account providers or the platform through which you're getting the managed account. You can go directly to some of them. So Lonsec have them. Morningstar have them, Pendle have them. So there are a large range of managers out there. It's just whether or not you can access them either directly or through your chosen platform. Yes. If we took a white sheet of paper and we said an SMSF, $1 million, members are 50 years old, where would you like to see the money to go? If they're 50 years of age and they're, you know, therefore they're not traveling, they're around, they can manage the, the investments, then I would be looking at either a low-cost wrap account or to deal directly on a, on a share platform where probably not Comsec because it doesn't offer access to M funds, but something like a Macquarie Online Trading or a desktop broker where you've got access to shares, managed funds, ETFs, and an attached cash account. I see. And when you say M funds, you mean managed funds, correct? It's managed funds, but they're both bought on market, like similar to a share. So they can be bought through a share broker rather than having to fill in an application and, and send it off or having to use a wrap account to buy it through. The units are listed and you can buy and sell them directly through the trading platforms that are not Comsec. Yes. I don't think ANZ Trading offers it either. So any of the, the big ones that have, have their own investments, like you know, Comsec doesn't do it because they've got Colonial. They don't want to eat their own market share. But some of the other platforms, like, as I mentioned, Desktop Broker, Macquarie Online Trading, CMC Markets, they all offer M funds. This sounds very naive. 
Is it possible to say that residential usually gives you a low return but a higher capital gain and commercial property gives you a higher return but lower capital gain? Residential, low return and high capital gains in capital cities. But once you get to regional areas, it flips. So you may get a, a much higher income yield, but a lower capital gain in a regional area. But for the majority of SMSF investors, I'm, I recommend that if they're going to invest, they go for capital cities because of the consistency of returns. And in regional areas, you also you often have exposure to just one industry. So you leave yourself very exposed. But yes, so in capital cities, you normally see a low return, less than 3.5% rental yield. But the capital gains over the longer term tend to be well. And with commercial property, it's, it's the opposite. You tend to get a, a very decent income yield or return. What is a decent yield? Unfortunately, because interest rates have dropped, it, it, it is dropping. But traditionally, you were looking at a 6% to 8% per year income. Now, because people are chasing returns, you're probably looking at more of a 4.5% plus return on the income side. Which, bearing in mind, if, I'm, if you're looking at a target of you know, five or five and a half, having the income side return four and a half is very good. And then low capital gains, basically because in a lot of cases, these are just a box. You know, commercial buildings in, in a lot of cases are not, not overly complex and somebody else can build one down the road. Capital gain-wise, it's only if the whole area itself changes in nature that you'll often see the capital gain come through in the longer term. So one probably needs to distinguish a lot between different commercial properties because, yes, the um, greenfield warehouse is a commodity that is a dime in a dozen, but a sales shop, a retail shop on Oxford Street in a Victorian terrace probably is more than like a residential property than in terms of lower returns but high capital gain. Again, it just it depends. There are a lot of shops. Niche markets. Yeah. Well, no, there are a lot of shopping strips around Sydney now that because, you know, if there's no parking, there's no customers. You know, you really need to be careful about assuming that a commercial property will, will have a high capital gain like residential because just a change in the area can basically destroy that capital gain potential very quickly. Just look at the shops in George Street after the last two years of just three years of disruption due to the, the light rail being put in in Sydney. Businesses have been ruined and valuations have collapsed on some of those retail properties. If there is a joint acquisition of a property by an SMSF and a member, they buy the property together as tenants in common. Can the member put a mortgage on their tenants in common share? No, they can't because a, an SMSF cannot give a charge over its property unless it's through an, an, a limited recourse borrowing arrangement. That's the whole idea of having the bare trustee. An SMSF itself cannot give a charge over the asset, so the member can't put a mortgage on that. A property that is jointly acquired by the individual member and the SMSF as tenants in common, so they each have their share. Of course, the SMSF can't put a charge on it unless it's an official LIBA and the title is actually held by the bare trustee. But can the member put a mortgage onto their individual share of the property? Not really, because to do so, the lender would need a, a charge over the, the whole property. A lender won't just take a charge over 50% of a property knowing that they can't go after the SMSF share. They can't force the SMSF to sell. No lender wants to end up owning 50% of a building with you know, a 70-year-old couple 
miss the other owners. Yes, yes. No, I, I got your point. Assuming the cash for an LRBA sits in a bucket company, who should give the LRBA to the SMSF? Should it be the bucket company itself and then you just deal with Division 7A issues through a loan agreement, etc.? Or should you take the money out of the bucket company and then have the individual member contributing the LRBA to the SMSF? That will depend on the tax position of the, the members, you know, of the individual people, because within a bucket company, the the income and the will be taxed at 27 and a half or whatever it is. Um, whereas you may find that in a couple, there is one that's not working the, the business or is, you know, is a stay at home mom or dad. They on a very low marginal tax rate, in which case you would have them giving the loan to the SMSF and the income coming back to them at a tax effective marginal tax rate. I see. So you really just look at the marginal tax rates. If the um, non-working spouse has already maxed out their tax rate and they're at the top marginal tax rate, then there is an argument to run it through the bucket company if you're willing to deal with the Division 7A issues. Yeah, no, you would really need to explain to the client the issues around Division 7A and make sure that they're aware of you know, what their obligations are. A lot of people just don't understand them and they just rely completely on their accountant to run it. And then they change accountants or they start trying to do things themselves. And there's a very strict set of rules when it comes to an LRBA and they must be followed under the safe harbor tests. They must be followed strictly. But you have two issues. You have the LRBA on the one side and the Division 7A issue on the other side if you give the LRBA through the bucket company. Exactly, yeah. So my preference would be not to use the company if possible get the money out of the company and lend directly from one or both the members. Yeah, just to reduce the number of pit holes you can fall into. Because And the other thing you want to avoid is getting into a position where the SMSF is considered to have non-arm's length income and that it's, you know, that you've breached the commercial terms or dealing at arm's length rules. So, yeah, you just need to be very careful. Some advisors see themselves as investment gurus and they want to recommend and control everything for a client. I think with SMSF's advisors have learned to become a hybrid. I'll sit down with clients and try and understand what they're comfortable with and their previous investing experience, areas where I think I can add value, and then sit down with them and, and propose some solution with them. They may have already some investments they want to keep, and I'll just blend around that to make sure that they diversify and take some of the risk out of the portfolio. I would just warn people not to be chasing yield in this current period. Rate, interest rates are low for a reason. Governments have you know, been actively doing quantum easing and having low interest rates for a long time. People should not be going rushing out looking for the things that just pay a high yield without doing a lot of research into them. There's going to be a lot of products out there that offer High yield, but the amount of risk that comes with it will not suit a lot of people. Welcome back. So this was a first foray into investing, but of course we will do more in the near future. In the next episode, episode 187, Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Sydney will answer your questions about SMSFs buying property as tenants in common. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.